This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Welcome to The Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, Pratushi Alamanchi. I'm a fourth-year med student here at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and an MBA student at the Wharton School. Today, we're talking to Susan DeVore, the president and CEO of Premier. Her company's mission is to transform healthcare by improving performance of thousands of provider organizations that the company partners with. We'll get into exactly how Premier is transforming healthcare today this hour, but we'll also find out more about Susan and how she's emerged as one of the most significant leaders in the healthcare industry today. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Patricia. Susan, to get things started, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what Premier is and what your role is within the healthcare industry? Sure. Um, Premier's a public company, and we are a national healthcare improvement company. So we have a footprint of 76% of the hospitals, almost 4,000 hospitals in the country, and a, about 150,000 other providers of care. And we wake up every day thinking about and helping them improve and transform the healthcare system, the delivery system from the inside. Uh, we have a lot of clinical data, financial data, operational data, consultants, and we have a big supply chain organization. And all of those things are brought together to really drive costs down and to drive quality and safety improvements uh, in healthcare systems across the country. That's that's such an important mission, and um, just being a med student, I can imagine that working with providers can be incredibly complex. Can you give us an example of a type of project that Premier might work with the hospital on? Yeah, so we fundamentally believe at Premier that you can't transform the healthcare system from the outside, meaning we don't really think insurance companies can fix this. We don't really think government can fix this. But we think if you go inside the healthcare system with physicians and nurses and clinicians and hospitals and surgery centers and nursing homes, and you really work to redesign the way care is delivered, if you connect it with technology, um, if you help them buy their supplies and devices, for example, together, and you can achieve better pricing then you can achieve cost savings. And so what would be typical with one of our health systems is that they're in what we call our group purchasing organization. They're also using several of our technology applications, and they have wraparound subject matter experts who are constantly mining the data and helping them lower the cost of their supplies or improve their mortality metrics, their quality metrics, their safety metrics by identifying, you know, what are the root causes of the variation in their healthcare systems. Sure, yeah. And to go over, to go more, a little more into that, um, now everyone seems to be talking about how healthcare is now in this era of constrained resources and as we transition to value-based care, how exactly is this healthcare supply chain changing? The healthcare supply chain is changing a lot, but it's it's bigger than that as well, meaning that you can't just change the cost of healthcare based on the cost of supplies. You've really got to figure out 
how physicians are practicing differently. You've got to figure out how to get the duplication out of the system. You've got to figure out how to make the technologies talk to one another. So if you're a provider of care, you can see what's happening with with a patient uh, from end to end. I think these new payment models, these value-based care delivery models, or uh, they have a variety of names and forms, but these payment models that actually incent providers to take care of a patient from end to end and to be responsible for, with the patient, the decisions and choices that get made um, along the way is where there's an exponential level of savings and an exponential level of quality and outcomes from our perspective. So we measure all of that, and we have data on 45% of the patients in the country so we can, by you know, applying machine learning and by utilizing the data and bringing data science and subject matter expertise to it, we can actually figure out what works and what doesn't work. And so, for example, sepsis is, you know, used to be actually several years ago the number one um, driver of uh, unexpected mortality or preventable mortality in hospitals. And so we went to work on sepsis, sepsis protocols, identifying it on admission, um, treatment patterns, um, variation in a healthcare system, and getting to systematic sepsis protocols. And that allowed sepsis to, to drop to number 14 uh, in terms of a, of a cause of preventable mortality. So we actually um, think that boiling the ocean doesn't really work. But if you have data and you can go deep into root causes, of variation and of mortality and of high cost, you can figure out um, how to change the way the care is being delivered. 45% of patient data in the country, that's really an incredible number. Um, Is the data you're collecting through the EHRs at each of these providers? So we have data that comes from the EHRs. So we actually have um, an infection surveillance um, or a safety surveillance monitoring um, application that connects directly to the electronic health record. So we have electronic health record data, but we also have administrative data, lab data, surgery data, claims data. And it really is the bringing together all of those data sets so that you can see really what's happening with patients. We don't think any one data set by itself um, tells the whole picture. And so it's this combination of horizontal data across the system and then very deep um, EHR data and very deep data that goes direct to the individual practitioners, the physicians, the hospitals, the nursing units, um, so you can identify where the variation is occurring. Sure. And I think your SIRS example, uh, your sepsis and SIRS criteria, which is how you identify sepsis, I feel like that example was a great way of how you're using the data. Can you provide other examples, Susan, of how you make this large data set actionable for motivating physicians to change practice behavior and drive change in the healthcare system? Yeah, so a while back we created um, what we call a a waste report, which is really an an identification of sort of the top 10 
uh, things that are happening in hospitals and healthcare systems where there's a lot of variation. And maybe there's a lot of cost and maybe there are a lot of clinical implications. And so we've used um, the data, for example, to really help health systems figure out how they're dealing with palliative care. And, and are they dealing with palliative care in a very expensive way, or are they dealing with it in what is a cost-effective and maybe even more clinically acceptable and better for the family uh, kind of way? We've used it to identify blood utilization problems and challenges and variation across healthcare systems. So we looked at all the blood utilization. And, and, there, and we found an overuse of, of blood products, which carry with it clinical risk, but also significant cost. And so we were able to show all the healthcare systems, you know, what their blood utilization patterns were, and, and then have them think through and look at um, how others did it, uh, change their practice patterns, have improved clinical outcomes, less risk, and less cost. Uh, we've done a similar thing with the overuse of imaging. Uh, we've done similar analyses with the use of ICUs and step-down units. Um, and so really what we try to do is mine the data and find lots of variation. And if there are clinical outcomes and cost opportunities that go with that, we then you know, go back out to the healthcare systems and say, here's how you look compared to everybody else, and here's what we found in best practices, and here's the clinical and economic impact. So we have, you know, a whole bunch of these use cases that help providers really figure out how to optimize the care delivery. Sure, yeah, finding waste in the system and ways to address that is so important. For those just joining in, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratushi Almanchi, and I'm speaking with Susan DeVore, CEO and President of Premier. Feel free to join our conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. Susan, I, you had mentioned um, some of the sources of waste, like duplication in the system and um, overuse of imaging. And just from my experience, um, I've seen patients come in where they've had all of their testing and workup done at a different hospital, but because they used a different EHR at that hospital and their records didn't come through, it was simply faster to redo all of the tests and retake the images than it was to try and track down their lab tests and delay care. So there was a lot of duplication of care. is there is that something that you have seen as well, or is there ways that Premier has found to address things like that? So we call that the interoperability problem. Sure. Um, there's a lot of discussion about it. We've actually built all of our data and our technology assets in the cloud, and we have been very intentional about being both vendor agnostic, meaning we need to pull data from all the different EHRs sure. and the different timekeeping systems and the different supply chain systems and ERP systems. And we also need to be payer agnostic, meaning we need data from Medicare and Medicaid and all of the commercial insurance companies. And so we necessarily had to build the platform in the cloud and had to be able to, you know, spend the money and make the investments to write the interfaces um, to the different uh, vendor systems. 
So, so we bring the data in, we normalize it, we cleanse it, we standardize it, we analyze it, and then we help the healthcare systems um, drive their improvement. It is um, not as efficient as it could be uh, if the you know, APIs were open APIs and vendors were forced um, to allow their data to be able to go back and forth more easily. So we support a lot of policy initiatives in Washington designed to really make data more interoperable and have everybody have access to the data sets and patients have access to the data sets to really drive uh, the improvement. Uh, It's a big challenge in the industry. The new HHS secretary um, seems intent and and the administration on having patients have access to all of their information. And so we're starting to see some progress, but but it will take some time to get there. Sure, you touched on it, but exactly with Alex Azar now at the helm of HHS, and he seems like he's had a lot of support for value-based care initiatives. Do you see um, value-based care and some of the issues around interoperability kind of moving forward? We do. Um, you know, we believe that we believe that you can't solve this problem uh, by maintaining a fee-for-service kind of payment system. You've got to have value-based payment models that incent all the various parts of the system to coordinate care, to lower the cost of care, to make all of the data accessible. And so we do think that Alex Azar is supportive of value-based payment programs. We actually think he uh, might move it forward uh, more aggressively uh, than it has been over the last year or 18 months. Um, And we think he's also very focused on interoperability and making uh, the data available and and able to be used across settings. And so the, the bundled payment program, what they call the ACO program, these value-based purchasing programs. I mean, there is definitely a movement to providers taking on some risk for the overall clinical outcomes as well as the total cost across settings. And we think that's a very positive movement because we think that's the only way you're really going to drive the effectiveness of the delivery system. Absolutely. I think it definitely pushes evidence-based medicine forward. we sort of went over we went over what Premier does and the great work that you are doing. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Susan, how did you get started in the healthcare care industry? You know, healthcare, I guess, is sort of in my DNA. My dad was a biomedical engineer uh, in the military, and so I grew up. Uh, in healthcare, and I also grew up traveling around uh, the world. So, you know, I just had expo- a lot of exposure to different environments, different cultures, and I come from a very, very large family. Um, and so, when uh, when we settled in North Carolina, uh, my dad started a, a company called Sun Health with uh, some other folks, and the whole idea behind that company was to aggregate the buying power and the data of healthcare companies because you've got 5,000 hospitals and healthcare systems, they're all doing the same things, 
but they're all doing it in different ways. And so he and the others saw a real opportunity to aggregate their buying power and to, you know, aggregate their analysis of, of data. And so he started what is now a predecessor company of the premier that I'm a part of. And so in some ways, I think it was destiny. Um, but I was generally just exposed to healthcare all my life. Um, I find it fascinating. I think it's a very important social mission. I mean, I think healthcare and the healthcare industry is one of the biggest social and economic challenges and opportunities of our time. And so the opportunity to be right in the middle of trying to drive, you know, improvement in the affordability and the clinical performance of our healthcare system is very exciting to me. So I actually uh, worked at Ernst & Young in their healthcare practice for many years uh, out of college and then uh, led some of their non-healthcare businesses. And then in 2003, I actually got a call from um, the West Coast, which is where Premier used to be headquartered, and um, was asked if I had an interest in this company. And they didn't even know my dad had started the predecessor company because I had a different last name. So. It, it feels like destiny to me that, that I'm here doing this work, and I, and I feel really lucky to be doing that. That's amazing. That's great to hear that you are continuing your father's legacy and almost in an unexpected way. I like that you were recruited to Premier and they hadn't realized that your dad was your dad. Yep. Um, Susan, you are an industry-leading thinker. You've been named multiple times to Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People and Top 25 Women in Healthcare. Um, we've done a few shows so far on the lack of diversity at the top of companies in the healthcare industry. Do you have any advice for women who are seeking positions of leadership in healthcare? You know, I, I do think that we still have a long way to go. I think in healthcare, you know, 75% of that workforce is is female, um, and a very, very small percentage are in the executive leadership ranks um, or the CEO ranks. I also think women, by and large, are the chief medical officers uh, of the family, making, you know, insurance decisions and provider decisions. and and seeing the care through um, the whole continuum. And so, you know, for me, it, it starts with recruiting and not just gender diversity, but all forms of diversity, because healthcare is one of those industries that touches everybody and touches everybody in very important ways. It's life and death, you know, decisions. Um, and so I think that having recruiting and bringing talent in that is very diverse in all forms and forms of thinking, and then combining what I think um, are people's superpowers. So if there's something that I do or you do so much better um, than everybody else, how do you combine that superpower with other superpowers to really create a diverse and a unique and a multifaceted uh, set of perspectives to solve what are um, important and very complicated uh, challenges in the healthcare industry. So I think it starts with recruiting, but then it continues with active mentoring and development. And, and then I think it moves to 
how do you get people to move out of their comfort zones, particularly women, um, and and try different things and sort of jump off the cliff and, and take the next step. Um, so, so it's really every step of the way, how do we support women and other diversity in, in actually Absolutely. choosing to go for it? Yes, Susan, that is such a great note at, at, to end on. That's all the time we have for today. Um, I'd like to thank our producers. You've been listening to SiriusXM, Business of Healthcare. Thank you so much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.